how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Ezekiel part two. Let's start with the call of Ezekiel. Remember he was 30 years old, the very year in which, normally speaking, he'd have become a priest like his father and taken on the very holy duties of offering sacrifices in the temple. But he's far from home, he's deported, he's away in Babylon and he can't ever be a priest in Babylon. There is no temple, there are no sacrifices to be offered there. Incidentally, that's where the synagogue began and replaced the temple because the synagogue was the place of praise and reading the Bible, place of praise and prayer and in fact that is the normal Jewish pattern now because they have no temple. They worship centres on the synagogue and it all began in Babylon. They had to meet together but they couldn't offer sacrifices. They had no altar, they had no priesthood. And incidentally, that gives us the pattern for church life because we don't have a temple and we don't need altars and we don't need priests or sacrifices. What we do have are synagogues. The word synagogue means to come together. So they came together there, but they didn't need a priest. They needed a teacher, a rabbi, but not a priest. So he had no career, but God had a career for him. And it began like many prophets' careers with a vision. And that is very clearly described right at the beginning of Ezekiel's book. It is a weird vision. And again, modern scholars have a heyday. They say he was cataleptic, that he had a fit, and this is what he saw in his fit, or they say he took drugs. Isn't it amazing what people will do? It was certainly a weird picture. You really need to be a surrealist artist to paint it. And that's a very poor sort of... Um, sketch of something like it. It's an impressionist uh, picture of it. Now most of it is fairly understandable. It's the wheels that get you, isn't it? (laughs) And in fact the favourite interpretation today is to say that he saw a UFO. And uh, again, people find what they want to in the Bible, don't they? Let's just look at some of the features. First of all, there were four creatures, four creatures And these were a combination of animals, humans and angels. They had the wings of an angel, they had parts of them that were human and parts that were animal. And these four creatures are really symbols of creation. All the living beings that God has created, whether animal, human or angel. These are the three main orders. And we need to remember that human beings are not the peak of creation. The evolutionist won't say so, but we do. I've yet to meet an evolutionist who can explain to me where angels came from. They didn't come from monkeys. But uh, I find that evolutionists don't believe in angels anyway. But you see, all the creatures that God made are in three layers of life. Animals, humans, whom he made a little lower than the angels. And angels who are superior to us in strength, in appearance, in speed of movement and in many other ways. So these four creatures represent all creatures whom God has made in the four corners of the earth. 
and above them he sees the Creator on his throne, majestic, mysterious, covered in glory. That's a favourite word of Ezekiel, glory. Later we shall see he watches the glory leave Jerusalem and in vision he sees the glory return to Jerusalem. But wherever God is, there's brilliant light, there's radiance, there's glory, there's brightness, the glory of the Lord. That's a key phrase and I want you to remember it because when the other Son of Man came, people said of him, we saw his glory. Glory as if the only begotten Son of the Father. Glory is a very important word. It was the glory that blinded Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and seared the retina of his eyes. Glory means the radiance, the brightness of God. Nearest thing you can get to it is to fly above the clouds when the sun is shining on the top of the clouds. That's the nearest thing you'll get physically to glory. Have you ever done that and looked down on the cumulus under the sun? It's glorious and that's, uh, it's often linked with clouds, this glory in Scripture, clouds of glory. Well now here is the Creator on his throne over all creatures. It's a crystal throne supported on a, a crystal platform transparent, it's beautiful. Now come these wheels, they're at the bottom and they're supporting the crystal platform on which the Creator's throne is and the wheels are unusual, I've tried to make a little sort of model. The wheels are sort of intersected like that, so two wheels are common and round the edge of the wheels are eyes. Now the wheels, you see, can travel in any direction and they are a symbol of the omnipresence of God. God can be anywhere and everywhere. He is a mobile God. Now the significance of this is that up till then every vision of God's throne was static, fixed in one place. That place was Jerusalem and here's one of the first bits of comfort for Ezekiel God's throne is mobile. He can move to Babylon. Do you understand? See, when you think God lives in one place and you're hundreds of miles away, you think God's a long way away. But God's throne is on wheels and wheels that don't just go in one direction but can go in any direction. You get the message? It's a simple symbol once you've understood it. Not only that, but the eyes tell you that God can see everything everywhere, see? that he's aware of everything, that wherever you go he sees you, his eyes follow you. Now all that is, I think, very simple and very profound. It's, it's not somebody who's been on drugs. This, it's very meaningful though it's not the way we usually think but it's a very meaningful picture. The creatures, the four corners of the earth, animal, human and angelic, the Creator above them all, ruling over them all in glory, the mobility of this Creator and His throne, He can be anywhere and He sees everything. No wonder Ezekiel was overwhelmed <laughs> with the vision and fell on the ground. You know, I was asked recently by a pastor in a seminar, do you believe in being slain in the Spirit? Have you heard that phrase? 
And I said, well, yes, it's biblical. Ananias and Sapphira were slain in the Spirit. <laughs> and I said, uh, if you want the experience, just tell a lie about what you put in the offering and make sure Simon Peter is your pastor and you too can be slain in the Spirit. And he said, you're evading the question, David. You know what I mean? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, falling on the ground. Well, I said, why didn't you say falling on the ground? I said, that's how the Bible calls it. And then, of course, it doesn't mean that God pushed you. It's simply falling on the ground. And I said, that's biblical too. Ezekiel fell on the ground many times. Paul fell on the ground. John fell on the ground. But they weren't pushed. Don't blame the Spirit when people flake out. That's a human reaction to the divine presence. And Ezekiel, more than once, when he was confronted with the divine presence, fell on the ground. The interesting thing is that again and again God says, stand up again, I haven't finished talking to you. <laughs> and also it says that the Spirit raised me to my feet. Now it doesn't take the Spirit to fall on the ground, but it does take the Spirit to lift you onto your feet again. So I believe in being raised by the Spirit. But I believe it's perfectly biblical for somebody confronted with the Divine Presence to fall on the floor. If they suddenly do that, I believe the Spirit is at work. And that's what happened to Ezekiel. I'll just throw that in because it's amazing what people do with the Bible. We introduce phrases like slain in the Spirit or resting in the Spirit, which are not biblical, and have a wrong connotation underneath them. Be biblical, and it is biblical to fall on the ground, and it's biblical to be raised by the Spirit. And that's what happened to Ezekiel here. Now, God gave him a scroll and on it was written the prophecies that he was to deliver. All this is in the vision and God says, I want you to eat that and he had to take the scroll and eat it and digest it. There's a little point there which is very important if you teach others the Bible, be sure you digest it yourself first. It's got to become part of you. People know when you're just passing on book knowledge and they know when it's part of you that you're living that message, that you've eaten that word yourself and you're really passing on the digested word of God. So he had to eat it. And though it was a very sad scroll, the words on it were words of lamentation, words of mourning and words of woe, curse words, yet he found it sweet. Now... That may puzzle you, but when he ate it and digested it, he found it sweet. Now, it's amazing, but when you're really right with God, even the severe words of God are sweet. Now, you may or may not understand this yet, but I've been speaking a lot about hell recently to restore the understanding of it to Christians. And it's amazing how many have come up afterwards and said, uh, thank you, I really enjoyed that. And then they said, no, perhaps that's not quite the word, but I was really encouraged by that. Isn't that amazing? That a sermon on hell can be an encouragement, but I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. It's better that God speak to you about anything than not speak at all. And it's encouraging to know that people don't get away with things. It's an encouragement to know that God is going to deal with evil, isn't it? It really is. And he found these words sweet, even though they were sad words. Little contradiction, but again he was told like Isaiah, you're up against hard people. 
and they will get harder as you preach. And then God said to Ezekiel, but I'm going to make you harder than them. (laughs) It's tough this, isn't it? He says, I'm going to make your forehead like flint. In other words, nothing will be able to get in to discourage you because there's plenty to discourage prophets around. When people get harder and harder and don't want to hear, but if you've got a hard forehead, that doesn't get into your thinking. You only think of the Word of God and delivering the burden to others. Well now, Ezekiel had supernatural sight and therefore insight and therefore foresight and therefore oversight. These are the sights that God gives you. Gives you insight into things and you see things that others don't see. He gives you foresight and you see what's going to happen before it happens and he gives you oversight. He helps you to sit up with him and look down and see it all, see his unfolding purpose. That kind of sight comes through vision and there's a great emphasis here on the visual. We are moving into another branch of prophecy called apocalyptic. It's still prophecy but it's different. It's more visual than verbal. It's very symbolic, very dramatic and uh, of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, Ezekiel is a good example, Daniel is probably the best and in the New Testament, Revelation is what we call apocalyptic and the word apocalyptic means unveiling, unveiling and it is this, as if these symbolic visions, though they sound complicated when you first read them, they unveil what God can see so that you can see it too. That's the essential meaning of vision. And there are two dimensions of Ezekiel's vision which are unusual. Outside of God they would be called clairvoyance and in fact there is such a thing as clairvoyance, it's of the devil. It is the devil's counterfeit for the divine sight that can be given. Ezekiel, for example, sees things happening in Jerusalem when he's hundreds of miles away in in Babylon and once again modern scholars can't cope with that so they say he must have kept going back to Jerusalem to see what was happening. You see, modern scholars are often so sceptical about the supernatural that they can't cope with it. They can't imagine someone in Baghdad knowing what's going on in Jerusalem at the time it's going on but Ezekiel through the Holy Spirit could actually see. For example, there was one point While he was preaching in Babylon, he saw a man drop dead and he only heard weeks later that the man dropped dead in Jerusalem at the exact moment that he saw him drop dead. He was prophesying about Jerusalem. He said, I see a man dropping dead. And sure enough, that was confirmed to the letter a few weeks later when news arrived. So you see, in a sense, this kind of sight is not limited in either time or space. It can see things happening in space somewhere else and it can see things happening in another time in the future and Ezekiel is full of such incredible sight. He sees things happening at other places and at other times and they are so vividly described that again unless you believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit you'd have to say that uh, Either he was himself moving around all these places or, regarding the future, that these prophecies were not written by Ezekiel but by someone else after the event. 
And that is the real choice we have when we get into prophecy and apocalyptic. Do you believe God sees all this and can show his servant the prophet or will you have to find a humanist explanation? Now, in fact, the Bible is a book full of predictions about the future. Let me give you some facts and figures. There are altogether, well, 27% of the verses of the Bible have a prediction about the future. That's over a quarter. And Ezekiel is one of the highest, one of the most concentrated. Another figure. Altogether, there are 735 separate events predicted in the Bible. Some of them are predicted once, one or two over 300 times, but 735 separate events are predicted before they happen. Of those, here's another statistic, it was an ancestor of mine invented the word, word statistics, Sir John Sinclair, he must have had his own teeth, it's a horrible word to say, and uh, people say there are three sorts of lie, black, white and statistical, but anyway, here's another one. Of those 735 events, 593 have already happened. That's 81%. Why do people read horoscopes? They're never more than 5% accurate. The Bible's been 100% accurate, not 81% because most of the other predictions are about the end of the world, which obviously couldn't have happened yet because we're still here. And there are less than 20 still to happen before Jesus gets back out of 735. That tells you something. Well now, Ezekiel and Daniel between them have the highest percentage of predictions about the future in the whole Old Testament. We're dealing with predictions and probably of the predictions in Ezekiel, three quarters have already come true to the letter and the statistical chances of such things happening, I'll be telling about one of them later, and the statistics of chance for that to happen are 1 to 75 million. Yet it happened. Why don't people believe the Bible? If you want to know what's going to happen to our world, read your Bible. God has told us all we need to know. So we are dealing with a miraculous book. We are dealing with a supernatural book. Without God, Ezekiel could not have said what he did. Now let's get the shape of the book. Looks a bit complicated at first, I know, when we look at a new chart, but uh, it'll come clear. I have been talking so far entirely about chapters 1 to 3, which was the fifth year of his exile. He was now 30, he'd been deported at 25, and he was aged 30, and the priest Ezekiel is being redeployed as a prophet. The first three chapters are entirely concerned with the vision and his response to it, which made him a prophet of God. Then we move into the messages, and there are three clear divisions in his message. His message came in only three occasions, remember, first in the three years from 30 to 33, then later when he was 36 to 37, and then the final one came when he was 50. So that's all 
he preached. In between he was silent, really silent. Now the three subjects he deals with over those three times of ministry are quite different from each other. The first is the most depressing. It covers chapters 4 to 24 and it is retribution for the city Jerusalem. There's nothing in it except this dreadful announcement that Jerusalem is going to be totally destroyed. Totally. And that's the really depressing section of his book, the one that nobody quotes. By the way, I wonder how many of you could actually quote me a verse from Ezekiel. I won't ask you to do it, but put your hand up if you could just quote a whole verse from Ezekiel. Do you see what I mean? About half a dozen of us. It really isn't a book full of memorable quotes. It's not a book of texts. You have to read the whole book to get the message. People who just like quoting texts, Ezekiel is no good for them at all. Well now, retribution for the city of Jerusalem and that was followed by that siege of Jerusalem which was a terrible trial and brought the city under Babylon's control without destroying it. Then comes the second time he prophesied in the 11th to the 12th year of his exile when he was 36 to 37 and it's covered by what we call chapters 25 to 32 so that you're reading there the second time he opened his mouth. This time it's not about Jerusalem at all, it's about the nations around Jerusalem who took advantage of the fact that Jerusalem was now under Babylon's control and who were glad to see Israel finished. Again, there's something strangely modern about this. Israel today is completely surrounded by people who would love to see her finished. See? It's the same situation all over again. And in fact, if you didn't realize it, Saddam Hussein's war was really aimed at Israel, not Kuwait. What he really hoped was to drag Israel into the conflict and finish Israel off and had he done so, he would have been the hero of the entire Middle East. He would have been the greatest. That's what he was after and he's still got that in his mind. But you see, this is so very similar and all that is God saying, I will take revenge on Israel's neighbours, on Judah's neighbours, little Judah. Everybody was so glad to see her going down but God says they will pay for that. And then in 587, of course these years all go backwards because we're in BC, in 587 Jerusalem was destroyed, that's when he lost his wife. Sorry, no, he lost his wife and Jerusalem was besieged. Jerusalem was totally destroyed. After that his whole preaching changed. He started again when he was 37 or at least that was almost a continuation of this. After Jerusalem was destroyed he continued preaching but now the whole of his message was one day we're going home, one day Jerusalem will be rebuilt, one day there's going to be a new temple and the whole thing becomes positive hope. One day the Valley of Dry Bones is going to come together and be a mighty army. It's all positive optimism, looking forward to a whole future. In other words, until Jerusalem was destroyed he had to be gloomy. As soon as it was destroyed 
what the people then needed was to be lifted in hope because they were now at the bottom of despair. You see how his message matched their reactions to what was happening and was God's answer to it. And the final chapters he didn't give till he was 50 years of age, so he waited another 13 years when God didn't allow him to open his mouth. And then when he was 50, God said, I've got one last thing you can tell them. And those chapters 40 to 48 talk about the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to show you architectural plans and drawings of that amazing building uh, done by a Jewish architect and uh, you will see them. Now there's one other thing on this chart that you may have noticed I've missed out. There is one phrase that comes all the way through uh, his prophecy, then you will know that I am the Lord. If you underline it, I, I did make a note of how many times it comes in my Bible. I was astonished how often that phrase comes. Let me just uh, find it for you. 74 times. 74 times. Only one word changes. In the first section, chapters 4 to 24, it's always then you will know that I'm the Lord. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. But when he moves to the second section of God's revenge on the neighbours of Judah, it is then they will know. Then they will know that I'm the Lord. And when he goes to the good news of the return from exile in Babylon, it's then the nations will know that I am the Lord. In other words, when God brings the Jews back to the Middle East, the whole world knows that God is the Lord. See? And that has happened in your lifetime and mine. And the whole world knows. Because humanly speaking, it was absolutely impossible to re-establish the state of Israel. It should have been swept into the sea in 1948. I remember being on the Golan Heights with an Israeli major right at the end of the 67 war. And I said, how did you get up here? I saw all the Russian guns pointing down at the kibbutzim. I said, how did you get up here? Do you know what the major did? It was right at the end of the war. There were bullets still flying. We had to be careful. And he just went, that was his answer. You see, when Israel comes back home, then the nations will know. See? Now that's the key phrase. It means, do you want to be sure about God? Then just watch what God does. Then you will know. You see, God is not just a little domestic God who helps you with your personal problems. God is in charge of history. God moves the nations around. And if you want to see God most clearly, you don't see in what he does with China or India, you see him most clearly in what he does with Israel, what he does with his people. That makes it clear. See, Then you will know. So it means that first of all, the people of Israel were not very sure of God here. Then you will know. And it means the neighbours of Judah were not very sure that the God of Israel existed. Then they will know. And this means that the whole world was not very sure whether there was a God. Then the nations will know. So we've got the key. Let's just run through the sections. Retribution for the city of Israel. Do you realise that when 
the place was taken by the Babylonians and they deported the top of society but left the city standing, the people of Judah said, well, it isn't as bad as Jeremiah made out. See, it's not as bad as the prophet said it would be. We've still got the city. See, now God had said, I will destroy the city but in fact, it still existed and it still had Jews living in it agreed that they were under a foreign power but they still had the city. In other words, it's not quite as bad as we thought. The prophets were wrong. That's why Ezekiel said, when Jerusalem is totally destroyed, then you will know that I am the Lord. Do you see? That's the background to that first section. The people thought it wasn't going to be as bad as the prophets said. Oh, well, these prophets, you know, they're always doom and gloom, they're always depressing, they're always exaggerating. That is a very common criticism of prophets. They exaggerate. It won't be as bad as they say it will be. And Ezekiel says, it will be as bad. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So this section was done, you see, before Jerusalem had fallen and after the Babylonians had been. And the people were saying, well, it's not as bad as we thought. And so that's why it's so depressing, this first section. Their sin was as bad as the prophets had said and therefore the judgment would be as bad as the prophets had said. Now then, Ezekiel not only had to communicate this message in word, he had to communicate it to their eyes as well as their ears. And the poor man had to do it in so many queer ways. I mean, actions speak louder than words. He had to teach them six times that Jerusalem was finished. The first was quite simply, he had to get a slab of clay and make a little model of Jerusalem. And then when it was baked hard in the sun, he had to take the model of Jerusalem and smash it to pieces. He did that in total silence. And they watched him, what's the old prophet doing now? He made this little model of Jerusalem and then he smashed it. He said nothing. The second time, <laughs> this was bad, the Lord said, lie on your left side for 390 days. Then lie on your right side for another 40 days. Can you imagine doing that? And he had to do that to symbolise the number of years they'd been disobeying God. and then the duration of the siege. And to make sure he did it, God said, I'm going to tie you up with rope. So imagine Ezekiel tied up in rope, lying on his left side for 390 days, then his right side for 40, not saying a word. What's he up to now? The third one, he had to go on a meagre diet to symbolise the shortage of food during the siege in Jerusalem and he actually lived on eight ounces of bread and two-thirds of a quart of water, that's 0.6 of a litre and 0.2 kilograms of bread and he had to live on that diet for a long time and he had to cook it over dried human excreta. So when he emptied his bowels he dried what came out and he used it as a fire to cook his little bit of bread. 
He said, things will be that desperate in Jerusalem. Actually, he protested to God. He said, God, I, he said, I can't use human excreta. And God said, all right, I'll allow you to use cow dung instead. Another wonderful example of God's flexibility, by the way. <laughs> See? It's very important, the flexibility of God, you know, because some people talk about God's sovereignty as if it's arbitrary, as if he just picks numbers out of a hat, as if he, you know, as if he makes a decision there's nothing you can do about it. That's not God. God really responds to us. And, and, and Ezekiel just said, Lord, I really do draw the line at that. God said, all right, you can use cow dung instead. It's, it's this real personal relationship between God and his people that comes across, you know. You go and see the film Fiddler on the Roof and look at the way old Tekfi talks to his God. That, that, that is the real relationship we have with God and we need it. It's a living relationship. You can persuade God to change his mind. Isn't that good? Isn't he a wonderful God even to listen to us? Well, the next thing, he had to shave his head and his beard. So he shaved off his beard and he shaved his head and then he put the hair in three piles and he burned part and then he burned the second and stuck a sword in it and then he took the third lot and he threw it up into the air and it scattered to the winds. So that's what's going to happen to the people of Jerusalem. The fifth, he had to put all his clothes in a bag and then dig a hole in a wall and creep out through the wall at night. And you know, when he did that, the same thing was happening. <laughs> or No, it was going to happen. That was when Zedekiah dug his way out of Jerusalem. He'd seen this happening and he had to act it. He said, this is, you'll find the king sneaking out through a hole in the wall. And the sixth was the hardest of all, I've already mentioned it, when his wife died. And he was not allowed to mourn because, said God, when Jerusalem finally falls, the people will be so stunned, they won't be able to believe it. They won't even cry. They will be just too bewildered, too stunned. And I want you to show them by not mourning for your wife that that will be their reaction to the ultimate loss of their city. Poor old Ezekiel. And he told them it would be a ruin, a ruin, a ruin. Jerusalem will be a ruin, a ruin, a ruin. There shall not even be a trace of it until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. And one of the most telling visions he saw was the glory of the Lord in the temple and the glory just disappeared and faded away and it went up to the top of the Mount of Olives and then disappeared. Does that tell you anything? It's exactly what happened to Jesus. They rejected him, he went to the top of the Mount of Olives and disappeared. The glory of the Lord went and he disappeared in clouds of glory. You know, the more you read the Bible, the more amazed you are that it all hangs together and that one detail here fits another detail there. Now why will Jerusalem fall? We're still in this first part. There are three major things, idolatry, immorality and ingratitude. Those are the three things that keep coming out. The idolatry, they were actually worshipping the goddess 
Asherah in the temple. They put figures of animals on the walls of the temple rooms and the women had started worshipping a goddess called Tammuz at the very gate of the temple. And uh, Ezekiel even saw 25 men in the temple worshipping the sun. I mean, all this was just religion, all sorts of religion coming in. I think that's going to be the biggest battle for us today, to keep Christianity free of other religion. It really is because our children are being brainwashed in school to be worshipping in a pantheon with Buddha and Confucius and Jesus all mixed up together. What was happening there? Immorality. It's interesting Ezekiel calls Jerusalem a bloody city because of the ruthless exploitation of widows and orphans and strangers because of the murders that were taking place in the city. There was lying throughout the city, sexual immorality throughout the city and contempt for parents in the holy city of Jerusalem. The ingratitude is God is saying, after all I've done for you, this is how you repay me. After all I did for you, you are utterly ungrateful. And you know, ingratitude is one of the major sins throughout the Bible. The failure to say thank you to God. He uses a series of stories to bang these points home. Ezekiel used parables to make his point. And there are five parables he uses. I just list them and you can look them up. A wild vine, that was a parable that Jesus used as well. A girl, a deserted baby girl who becomes a queen and then becomes a prostitute. That's a vivid parable. A parable of two sisters, a hola and a holibar, which represents Samaria, the ten tribes in the north, and Judah, the two tribes in the south. And the whole story of the two sisters brings home the message. Then there's a parable of the lioness and her two cubs, her two whelps are taken captive. And finally there's a parable of two eagles one representing Pharaoh and one Nebuchadnezzar. But parables are a way of communicating truth to those who want to know. And like the other son of man, he used the parables. Finally, he blamed three groups of people particularly, the prophets, the priests and the kings. He says they're all partly responsible for the condition of Jerusalem. And then, with his three heroes in mind, he said, God couldn't even save Jerusalem if Noah, Job and Daniel were living in it. But in fact, none of them were living in it. Daniel was in Babylon, Noah and Job were dead. But he says, if the three best men in our history were in this city, that wouldn't prevent it being destroyed. Noah, Job, and Daniel. Very interesting combination. Well, we'll leave it there until the third talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.